Hello, my name is Anne Morrison. I'm a journalist whose career has included work as a magazine editor for Time Incorporated in New York, Hong Kong, and London, as well as university teaching jobs in Beijing and Paris. It is my great honor today to be interviewing Tony Comer, who recently retired as the historian of GCHQ, the Intelligence, Cyber, and Security Agency that is the successor to Bletchley Park, the UK's code-breaking center during World War II. Though I earned a master's degree from the London School of Economics in the history of the Second World War, ours was a course in diplomacy rather than cryptography. I learned about the secretive Bletchley Park much later through books, television dramas, films, and stage plays, including the radio dramatization Bletchley Girls, which Tony and I will be talking about today. Tony, like one of the principal characters in the play, joined GCHQ as a linguist analyst, but he switched careers after a few years and has worked in every aspect of intelligence production. He was the UK representative on the NATO committee for six years and then drifted into the orbit of GCHQ's archivists and historians in the 1990s. He became departmental historian in 2009, making him the first ever member of the GCHQ to have a public profile. And then he spent 11 years in what he calls the best job in British intelligence. Hello, Tony. Hello, Anne. Thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. Let's talk about Bletchley Girls, a radio drama by Lou Beckett. At the very beginning of the radio play, a driver is taking Mavis Lever to Bletchley Park, and she asks him where she is. The biggest lunatic asylum in Britain, the taxi driver tells her. What did the local people know of Bletchley Park in 1940 when Mavis arrived? What had it been? Why was it there? How did it develop during the course of the war? The Bletchley Park estate had been built by a very wealthy industrialist. And after his death, uh, his heirs decided to sell off the estate. And so it was put up for auction in 1937, I think it was. And in 1938, uh, the head of the Secret Intelligence Service uh, bought the estate as a war station for British intelligence. It was quite clear that the war was coming and that they would need somewhere to work from. In uh, the autumn of 1938, it was tested during the Munich crisis and members of uh, MI6 and GCHQ, we were called GCNCS in those days, but moved to Bletchley Park uh, to test out how good a place would this be for wartime. And various improvements were made. And on the 15th of August 1939, two weeks before the Second World War started, both organisations up sticks from London and moved to Bletchley. Now, nobody in the local area was told anything at all. And the word was put out that these people had come to Bletchley Park uh, to support the air defence of London. Well, they looked at all these 60-year-old dons and young women and thought, what on earth have these people got to do with air defence? 
And so another of the the old boys, a man called Nigel de Grey, came up with this thing, let's call ourselves Government Communications Headquarters. And the people, the Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, the title we have today, on the grounds that it's pretty meaningless. You wouldn't have a clue from the title what anybody did. And they put up a big board early in October 1939 outside the entrance saying Government Communications Headquarters quarters but I didn't even bother to tell the staff what it was so all the local people saw was that there was this secretive establishment full of well lots of older people some of them who would have appeared quite strange uh, to people in a a small railway town in rural England, an awful lot of younger men and women who they thought, wow, these people in the forces, what are they doing? And everybody under the most strict instructions not to say what went on inside inside the park. So the idea that this was somewhere strange and different uh, grew up very quickly. And of course, even though we're jumping massively ahead of ourselves, it's worth saying that until 1974, the story of what they were doing didn't come out. And it was only in 1978 that the individuals involved were finally told that their oath of secrecy had been relaxed and they could talk about some aspects of their work there. Hmm. Um, when... When Mavis arrived in her initial interview with Alistair, Alistair Denniston, he tells her, we have very capable code breakers from Cambridge and Oxford here. We recruit Britain's best and brightest. Do you think you'll fit in? So early in the play, we get a hint that there'll be tension between the social classes as well as between men and women. What were the prevailing attitudes about the abilities of women or about those who did not have university degrees? You have to start by going back to the First World War when code-breaking begins in Britain. Uh, There had been code-breaking, obviously, from the 14th century uh, onwards, but in 1844, all British code-breaking activity stopped. So in 1914, they had to start from scratch. Uh, Of course, 1914, in the First World War, uh, most of the young men joined up immediately or tried to join up uh, immediately. And so for the code-breaking effort, right from the beginning, they were left with effectively people who weren't fit for military service. And that meant people with physical disabilities, but crucially, from for the history of signals intelligence point of view, people with neural differences and women. Lots of people don't realise that uh, something like in, in each of the two world wars, about three quarters of the people involved in British intelligence were women. Uh, simply because the authorities had no choice. If they wanted the work done... They couldn't use traditional attitudes and say, oh, this is man's work, because the men were predominantly away at the front fighting. And even between the wars, uh, this continued. Uh, There is 
one of the women who served in the First World War, Miss Emily Anderson, uh, who basically was too good a cryptanalyst to be given a job as a lady translator, which in the small interwar organisation that kept going after the First World War, those were the jobs that, in civil service terms, they were the only jobs that uh, there were... That, Lady Translators was about the senior role that a woman could play. But Miss Anderson was too gifted and talented. And it was Deniston uh, in 1919 who successfully argued with the Treasury and said that Emily Anderson had to be given a job as a cryptanalyst, had to be formally recognised as a cryptanalyst. And she had no degree. Uh, it was usual for the people who were recruited between the wars to have degrees, but it wasn't unknown for people not to have. As for social class, there were almost all people who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge. In fact, the, one of the jokes is saying that in 1938, diversity meant actually going to Oxford as well as Cambridge to recruit mathematicians. But even that hides the fact that some of the people who were being recruited were scholarship boys. They weren't people from well-to-do families. Uh, the British have always had a class system, but they've also been quite ruthless in recognising that sometimes they have to buy clever people from the lower classes and and teach them how to behave if uh, if the structures of society are going to carry on. And quite a few of the really successful cryptanalysts at Bletchley Park were people from really quite humble backgrounds, but who'd been saved by the scholarship system and who'd had an education, a secondary and a tertiary education, courtesy of the taxpayer. So for somebody who wasn't from a sort of middle or upper middle class background, it would be quite frightening to be faced suddenly with a lot of people uh, like that. It wasn't just like that. There were lots of uh, other people as well, people with whom it would have been slightly easier for them to relate. What about this matter of fitting in? Was that important or did the job ne not necessarily require this fitting in socially or culturally? It was, because of the way the work was compartmented, because of uh, the expression that people always used to use of, of need to know, uh, it meant that rather than very large work areas, a lot of the work was done in small groups. So uh, the area that we look at in the play uh, Dilly Knox's area, he'd recruited a small number of women to work in his area. But practically, uh, Mavis would have only needed to learn to get on with those few people and then others that she might meet uh, socially. But it wasn't as though she'd be working in a large open plan office with 70 or 80 other people at all. So probably, from that point of view, a lot easier than it might have been otherwise. 
You know, um, Dilly Knox, with his uh, uh, impeccable background at Eton and Cambridge, wouldn't have seemed to have been a crusader for women's rights as he was. Can you explain why he was so passionate about promoting women, aside from the fact that there was really no choice? I think he actually had the foresight to, well, he had the practical experience to realise that women were capable of everything that men were capable of intellectually. He'd married one of his colleagues from the Signals Intelligence Organisation in the First World War. You know, he'd seen women doing exactly the same work as men then. But I'm very confident that what he saw in 1939 and 1940 was that while everybody else was fighting for the best men to come and join the organisation, he could get his pick of very, very bright women uh, that people weren't sort of looking at yet uh, as a sort of pool of talent. So he was able to be, in a way, very selective, but he was able to fish in what was a large and deep pond before anybody else was there. So he actually picked a series of really, really talented women uh, because it meant that his section would be able to give of its best. Well, you, you've uh, introduced us to this uh, working area under Dilly Knox, and there are two women in the play who feature very prominently, Mavis and her friend and superior, Margaret. Could you talk a little bit about their relationships? I think, again, the, the fact that Margaret is older than Mavis uh, gives the play a real sense of the realism of the way society had developed between uh, the First and Second World Wars. You have to remember that Britain lost over a million men during the First World War. And the demographic balance, of course, they were nearly all men in their late teens and their 20s. And they were the people who effectively weren't around to get married. And there was a generation of women uh, who, you know, born around 1900 to 1910, who weren't going to get husbands, simply because there weren't enough men to go around. I think you see with Margaret that she was one of the people who, accepting that she wasn't going to have uh, a husband and children, actually was able to create a very rich life for herself. She was able to work, she was able to give of her best, she was able to use her talents, and she was able to use the money she earned and the freedom she had from not having lots of other ties uh, to be able to travel, to be able to go to concerts, to be able to buy books and things like this. And so she had a happy and fulfilled life, having made that decision that she wasn't going to be sort of looking for a husband and becoming a housewife and a mother. This contrasts, to my mind, with Mavis, who isn't really old enough when she gets to Bletchley Park to realise that it's a man's world. And because nobody tells her it's a man's world, she doesn't see why she can't have everything. Why can't she have a career and a husband? Why does she have to conform to this 
stereotype. And I think it's one of the really interesting things in the play that you see the way that an, an older woman has had to make certain compromises to be able to fulfil herself. But you also see the promise of the younger woman who, not having had it drummed into her, that there's only one way to to behave, uh, is quite happy that she should be able to have uh, a job that she can be successful at and she can go out with Keith and plan to marry him. You know, the world is open to whatever she wants to do in the same way, ironically, as it is for the man she's going to marry. Hmm. Um, But still, Mavis seems pretty incredulous when she's asked to be made, when she's asked to manage her department. She can't believe that she's up to the job. Is that sort of self-deprecating behavior more common perhaps among women than it is among men? I think, I think yes. I mean, you know, we talk a lot nowadays about imposter syndrome and I think it's very clear that this will affect women more than men because traditionally uh, they've always been the higher up an organisation you go, the more men there are. And for Mavis, who's only been in the job for, you know, a, a short period of time, who's much younger than everybody else, suddenly to be told, well, we think you're good enough to do the job. Uh, it's a normal human reaction, I think, to think, gosh, am I really as good as people think? Uh, you would get some very, you get alpha males who are very confident about their own abilities in absolutely everything. And I think most of us would run a mile to avoid having to be go anywhere near people like that uh, to begin with. But I think... I think it's quite a positive that people should, shouldn't just feel, oh, I can do absolutely everything. Uh, it's right that you should sort of be aware that you have got limitations. But equally, I think, and I think it's particularly true of women and particularly true of women in areas that society sort of labels as more for men, say, technology nowadays, to say you are just as intellectually capable as uh, any man. And more practically, if people didn't think you were good enough to do this job, they wouldn't have asked you to do it. You know, nobody's asking you to do this job to set you up to fail. You know, you're being asked to do this job because people want you to succeed. And I think that's an area, that's an area I think of personal development that I would love to see more attention uh, paid to in schools and education in preparing uh, young women, especially to going out into the world, is to really teach them not how to be sort of aggressively self-confident or anything like that, but just to have a sort of proper assertion of the fact that they are sort of pound for pound every bit as good as the young men that they've studied with. Well, let's talk about the the two men in in the play who were quite prominent, Deniston and Knox. What was their relationship? Their relationship goes right back to the First World War. Uh, Deniston uh, was recruited in the first week 
of the First World War to work in intelligence. He was a, a German uh, teacher at the Royal Naval College at Osborne. And the unit that was set up in the Admiralty to break codes desperately needed German speakers. So he was part of the first sort of hall to be brought in. Knox joined soon after. He was not uh, fit to serve uh, in the armed forces as, you know, in, on active service. And so he was brought in. In 1919, when the peacetime organisation was set up, Denniston was chosen to be its head. And it's quite interesting because he wasn't the most senior man. He wasn't even the most talented cryptanalyst. But he had an incredible skill of getting people to work for him by allowing them to work in ways that suited them. Uh, I've heard it described as a sort of applied anarchy. He would allow people to do things in whatever way they chose, as long as their direction of travel was the one that he'd set. He was phenomenally gifted at getting people to work together and achieving team working, even if the people actually taking part didn't realise that they were a team. Uh, in today's language, he would have been, you know, a people person, a very an incredibly gifted uh, manager of staff. Uh, by the time the play opens, this is beginning to break down. Those skills weren't scalable. You know, an organisation as it was in August 1939 of 180 people, uh, he could still know everybody who worked in the organisation. Once you're reaching thousands of people, it just didn't work. And he he wasn't an effective manager of a large organisation. Knox had been, to a certain extent, spoiled by Denniston. He was a very difficult man. Uh, his colleagues found him very difficult to work with. He was very idiosyncratic. He insisted on all of his things being done in his way. And Denniston could both massage his ego, but also, as I say, point him in the desired direction and make him work. But as in 1941, people began to plot behind Denniston's back uh, to be rid of him, to get a new head of the organisation who could get a proper grip on the whole of the organisation, which uh, Denniston had lost his grip by the end of 1940. Knox, in a fairly feline way, let the plotters know, I think, that he was sort of on their side. He wanted he wanted to uh, run with the hares and hunt with the hounds. He wanted to be on everybody's side. He didn't particularly want to fall out with Denniston, but he could see as well as everybody else that uh, Denniston no longer had a grip on the organisation. So you've you have a whole interesting set of relationships before the four characters. You have two contemporaries. One's the boss. The other is uh, his member of staff, though a truculent and difficult one. Between the two women, you have one who's 
older and more experienced in the world and one who's coming in straight from college. But in a way, there's a certain extent to which that parallels the relationship in 1914 between Deniston and Knox. And I think each of the men looks at each of the women in in a different way and sees different possibilities and qualities uh, in them. It's one of the things that I think makes the play fascinating is that instead of the caricatures, let's be honest, that you see in films like The Imitation Game of what it's like to work in an intelligence organisation, I think in this play you go beyond the sort of the stereotypes and you actually see four very believable human beings who've got strengths and weaknesses and Deniston's a character who fascinates, absolutely fascinates me. I think he's he's much misunderstood, and I think he's uh, his story still not sufficiently known. But again, you know, he is the one who is quite happy to see Knox recruiting bright young women for his organisation. He's he's sceptical about how much these young people can actually bring to his organisation the same way as anywhere where you've got people, well, I've been doing this for the last 30 years. What have, what have you young whippersnappers got to teach me? Well, the answer is lots of times everything. Somebody who comes with enthusiasm without preconception, somebody who's not been told this can't be done is going to try and do it. So I think all of these things are brought out. And I think the, the two sets of relationship or, perhaps the the multiplicity of relationships between the two men, between each of the men and the two women, between the women and the two men. I think it's fascinating to watch them develop. Well, since you bring up the film, The Imitation Game, um, Alan Turing is referred to in the play as well. And his uh, famous letter to Churchill, which goes over Deniston's head to request more staff at Bletchley Park. Um, could you talk a little bit, and then, of course, Churchill's immediate response was... Uh, uh, Let them have all that they want. That's exactly yes. right, yes. Um, and action the day, uh, this day. Um, so how does this letter and the aftermath of it reflect on Turing, on Deniston, and on Knox, and the work environment at Bletchley Park? It's interesting when you look at the letter, uh, there were the four cryptanalysts who signed the letter. And, you know, it begins with uh, the memory of Churchill's visit to Bletchley Park. And when, when you visited Bletchley Park, you told us to let you know if there was anything we needed. Who on earth would be as naive to think that when a politician says, oh, let me know if there's anything you need, that you can not only take him at his word, but write a list of what you want and get one of the signatories to go to Downing Street, literally knock on the door of 10 Downing Street in the middle of the Second World War and didn't quite get to the prime minister. We got to the prime minister's principal private secretary to hand the letter over. And what had happened was that the people who were most immersed in the plotting had persuaded these 
for mathematicians, well, the Prime Minister wouldn't have said it unless he met it, meant it, would he? Uh, for creatures of pure logic would see, of course, yes, so we'll write the letter. Uh, they were set up. They were very naive, as I say, young mathematicians. Including Turing. Oh, yeah, including Turing. It's almost impossible to get beyond the myth of Turing. Uh, Dermot Turing, his nephew, wrote a biography of him. It was published probably five or six years ago. It was called Prof. And it's the closest to an approximation of Turing the man instead of Turing the tragic gay icon. Uh, you know, Turing was a marathon runner who was a mathematician who had sponsored two young Jewish refugees from Czechoslovakia in 1938, who was incredibly patient and would play Monopoly with eight and nine-year-olds for two or three hours at a time just to keep them entertained, who loved playing chess, even though he was very, very poor chess player. He was all of these things. And he didn't define himself by a single facet of his character. And it's a shame that nearly every portrayal of Turing ends up just with this wooden two-dimensional myth, you know, the man who wouldn't work with anybody else. It's absolute rubbish. Hmm. Absolutely brilliant man. Uh, his work with the Poles that led to the his invention of the bomb as the machine that would support the cryptanalysis of Enigma. You know, if that was the only thing he'd ever done in his life, he would still be a sort of a national a national hero. But uh, in this particular case, as I say, the some of the older members of staff who'd been plotting against uh, Deniston saw a fairly simple way to bring to the attention of the Prime Minister what was going on. But there were other subcurrents as well. The man who would take over from Deniston, his deputy, uh, a man called Travis, he saw this not only as an opportunity to get rid of Deniston and to take over, but to get rid of MI6's influence over what was happening at Bletchley Park and for it to become a completely independent organisation. Uh, he saw a possibility of a much stronger and closer relationship with the United States than MI6 wanted, I think it's fair to say. There are a whole load of things going on, and it makes it even sadder in a way that such a good man as Deniston ends up being the the fall guy for everybody else's uh, wishes. It comes out in the play that, you know, Dilly has known about the letter. He didn't sign it, but neither did he tell Deniston that the letter was there. As I said earlier, you know, he's trying to play play with, on both sides uh, once. But it was, it was a crushing blow to Deniston. It was a crushing blow that only really two of the senior cryptanalysts who'd been around during the interwar period were 
loyal to him. And he was banished. He was sent away from Bletchley. He took a small unit to do diplomatic and commercial intelligence production, but they had to go back to London to do it. They weren't allowed to stay at Bletchley Park. They weren't even allowed to travel to visit Bletchley Park or anything like that. So it's something that's not what the play's about. Obviously, the play's about uh, Mavis and the way that she comes, but it's one of the things that's touched upon and I think uh, uh, obviously works for people who've seen the film. There's, 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 there's a part of what happened that they can they can relate to. I must say, in passing, that the Bletchley Girls is far more historically realistic than the imitation game. I think we'll get back to that. A a few times in the drama, Mavis suggests that things will be better after the war for people like her, when workers will be judged by their skills, not their backgrounds. Margaret is not so optimistic. Which one was right? You're probably going to get annoyed if I say they both are. No. Uh, okay. One of the one of the big changes that happened, and I think made Stalin incredulous at the time, was at the Potsdam Conference in 1945. Churchill was the prime minister when the conference started, but there'd been a general election. Um, by the time the second part of the Potsdam Conference came about, there was a new prime minister, Clement Attlee. There was a a Labour. Labour had a landslide uh, majority in the 1945 election. They were elected on a on a socialist programme of radical change of British society. And even at the start of the war, that we're not just fighting the war to, to sort of liberate Europe from Hitlerism, but we're fighting for a better world. And part of a better world is building a better society in Britain very idealistic uh, set of principles that a lot of people believed in, uh, believed in wholeheartedly. You know, and this is, I think, what Mavis is saying. Margaret's a bit older and perhaps a bit more worldly wise that lots of people are very idealistic. Lots of people want lots of good things to happen, but we live in an imperfect world. You can't legislate for things like decency, and fairness you just have to encourage people to be decent and fair but human nature is human nature so without being sort of party political I don't think anybody would say that the introduction of things like the health service uh, the 1944 education act and putting into practice after the war a new a completely new national education system, uh, nationalisation of some of the large industries, uh, whatever the politics at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, these were an essential way uh, for the country to recover after six years of war decolonisation liberating the countries in the empire that were there to, you know, there by right of conquest, not because they'd ever asked to become part of the British empire. Uh, I think that brave new world was 
already hoped for in 1940 and 1941. And so to somebody young and idealistic like Mavis, this would really have seemed like uh, what we were fighting for. We weren't just fighting for, you know, big things like international freedom and liberation of Europe from tyranny, but fighting for things at home as well. And did those things at home include uh, diversity, uh, better jobs for women, better pay for women, uh, more opportunities for the less advantaged? Uh, in theory, beforehand, yes. In practice, no. Uh, it's really sad to think that in December 1944, I can give you an exact figure, 76.4% of staff at Bletchley Park were women. And they did every single role, except for two. They weren't allowed to be armed guards on the perimeter of the camp. And there were no women in at the very, very top, the very senior management and the director. But there were women at every other level of the organisation. Uh, but most of them, at the end of the war, drifted away. They went back home. They went to become housewives again. Uh, men came back from the war, men took up the jobs that women had been doing. But it's a bit like when the tide's coming in, you know, you get a wave, hits the beach and goes really high and then comes back, you know, it sweeps back, but the seas come back that bit nearer. And it's it's the start of an irreversible uh, process. It just takes a very long time. Other forms of uh, discrimination continued as well. The only thing in which I think the signals intelligence has always been very good at recognising the value that diversity brings is neural difference. Uh, and this is the thing I mentioned that comes right back, goes right back to 1914, uh, the start of the First World War, when there are no able-bodied men available and they have to take what they can uh, Physical uh, disabilities, uh, people who are blind tend to be very good linguists. We always had lots of, a disproportionate number of blind linguists, but people with neural difference, people who think differently, we always have made space for them. Uh, people on the autistic spectrum, people who are dyslexic or who are dyspraxic are able to bring a different way of looking at problems and issues and seeing as most of what intelligence is about is about problem solving it's just been recognized even if we've not used labels like neural diversity that's a very modern way of talking about it but this is the reference to to the biggest lunatic asylum in britain that's quoted right at the beginning of the play this concentration of what at the time eccentric would have been the most sort of charitable term that would have been used must have looked absolutely bizarre to people in this small railway town in Buckinghamshire, about 70 miles away from London. Who on earth are all these people? But lots of other people learn tolerance. The people, people like Mavis who were coming into a world they didn't know, uh, learning to recognise that there were lots of very different people and and 
it, it, it's again, it's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but one of uh, the things that Deniston uh, was pleased with saying was, you know, I want people to give me the absolute best of their intellectual capability. And in return for that, I'm not going to tell them how to dress. I'm not going to have to tell them how to behave. He didn't. He, he didn't want a bunch of stereotypical civil servants. He wanted people who could break codes to win the war. And it's a shame much of that was lost in 1945. And it's taken a long time to get to the point. It's a bit like the difference between saying that you're not racist and you're anti-racist. It's taken a long time to get to the point where people have realised you can't just say you're in favour of doing things. You've actually got to do some really positive stuff to make it happen. Indeed. You're uh, credited as an advisor to the playwright, Lou Beckett. Was it difficult to find the right balance or to advise about the right balance between historical accuracy and good storytelling? That's, that's a really good point. I think, I think, I am untypical of most of my former colleagues at GCHQ, where I actually think that telling the story is in some ways more important than remaining slavishly faithful to historical facts. Uh, What you want to see is the effect of a place like Bletchley on a young, impressionable woman. Uh, And you want a modern audience of people of the same age uh, to be able to react in the way that she would have done then. Uh, I think it's much more important to have a coherent story that's instantly understandable by uh, young men and women today than worrying about sort of the uh, length of the hem on her skirts or on the precise language uh the you know the 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 way that you construct a sentence or anything like that you could be incredibly accurate and you'd bring nobody with you except for a tiny number of obsessives you know who just wanted just wanted accuracy it's not just a problem here it's a great problem that the trustees at bletchley park have got today. How do they tell the story of Bletchley Park to the school parties who come? Absolutely pointless to start lecturing on on the difference between the wirings of the third and the fourth rotor of an Enigma G in 1942. You know, there are old fogies like me who are interested in that sort of thing, but that's not going to turn anybody onto how important it is to have young minds exploring things what you need to do is tell the story and remain true to a sort of the core facts of what was going on but entertain people it's much easier to educate people if you entertain them than if you just reel off facts so i think i'm i'm untypical i think uh, many of my colleagues would have much preferred something that was slavishly Uh, accurate to historical facts but I would rather that sort of slavishly accurate about what it's like to be a young person walking into a place like that in the middle in the middle of a war and thank goodness it makes a lot more entertaining for everybody. 
that's excellent. Um, you, you, I thought you might mention in, in that discussion about Bletchley Park that there are some code-breaking workshops, I understand, that have been inspired by this play. Is, is that the case? Yes, uh, I think that's a really important part of uh, the play, that it doesn't just stand alone that uh, one of the ways in which people that people who sort of have a performance of the play can actually build on it by having these workshops uh, around it so that somebody very unkindly said, oh, is this because you don't expect sort of 16, 17, 18-year-olds just to sit and watch a play for goodness knows how long? I don't think that's fair at all. Uh, but something that says every now and then you break into the play and you have intervals when you go to the theatre. Imagine if in those intervals you can actually do something that relates to what you've just been seeing as a way of making it real, as a way of saying to young people, you can do exactly what Mavis was doing. You know, it's, 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 it's in your gift. Here's how capable you are of getting into this world. I think it's fantastic. It's almost like an extra dimension that's added to the play to say in the same way as these people did it for real. It wasn't just a sort of a nice little hobby for Mavis to sort of I'll, I'll leave university and go and play around with codes and ciphers. This was something real and important for her to do. And I think it's a way of introducing people to the fact that there's a whole world of intelligence, but not just of uh, the sort of intelligence that countries do, but there's sort of business intelligence, there's uh, data manipulation, there's the whole question of cyber security. The work that Mavis did has expanded massively, and any of the young people who are coming out of schools today are capable of becoming part of that world. Thank you very much. Speaking of extra dimension, you have certainly added an extra dimension to this already excellent play, Bletchley Girls by Lou Beckett. Thank you again, Tony Comer. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me to talk to you.